Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's Outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, October 3rd, and we've got a lot to talk about this week. You may have heard that President Trump is facing an impeachment inquiry. We'll talk about what it could mean for the drug industry's priorities. One of the most important and often overlooked stories in medicine is what happens when the supplies of critical standby medicines becomes disrupted. University of Pittsburgh urologist Ben Davies calls in to explain. Biotech had a rough quarter on Wall Street. We'll talk about how things might pick up before the end of the year. And finally, Ben Davies will join us again for a special lightning round. He'll dish on cheap wine, sartorial preferences, and what it means to be a real sports town. But first, a word about Stop Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. P-O-D. First up, we're going to talk about that impeachment inquiry into President Trump and what it might mean for the drug industry. So unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard that the Democrats are launching an impeachment inquiry into the president. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. This, of course, follows a whistleblower complaint and the readout of a phone call regarding an effort by Trump to pressure the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden's son. We realize that this sounds far afield from biotech, but it could have big implications for the industry's priorities if the impeachment inquiry sucks up all the oxygen in the room that is Washington. So joining us to talk about this is Nicholas Florco, Stats Washington correspondent. Nick, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start with drug pricing legislation. As we've talked about on this podcast a number of times, both the Trump administration and the Democrats have put forth competing, albeit somewhat overlapping plans to try to lower prescription drug costs. There were already doubts about whether such legislation could go anywhere in a divided Washington. And then came the impeachment inquiry. So on Wednesday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi took questions from reporters about the impeachment inquiry, and she opened her remarks with a very pointed statement about drug prices. H.R. 3 is important because, as I've said to you before, across the country, you could see grown men cry at meetings because of the cost of prescription drugs. In the last year's election, this was a very high priority. It continues to be. So when the president says that he can't do anything if a piece has the threat of impeachment or the consideration of impeachment, I hope he doesn't mean he doesn't want to work together to lower the cost of prescription drugs. So, Nick, what do you make of Pelosi's remarks? Well, they're a clear sign that Pelosi knows she needs Trump to back her drug pricing bill. The bill's sweeping, and it's opposed by establishment Republicans like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who decides what gets a vote on in the Senate. And it seems Pelosi's strategy for getting this across the finish line is that if Trump backs her plan, McConnell might be forced to take it up, and Trump's support might also help get Republican senators who need to vote on the bill to get on board. 
And honestly, it's not a bad strategy because we've seen Trump so often break from Republican norms on the topic. He said on the campaign trail that he supports Medicare negotiating over the price of drugs, which is the crux of the Pelosi bill. And so I don't know if Pelosi's trying to do damage control and plea with Trump to work with her or she's challenging him to work with her. But either way, her remarks are a clear sign that she just knows she needs Trump's support here. But again, Nick, does the impeachment inquiry that's going on and all the attention that that takes, does that just sort of put as a giant roadblock in the way of anybody working together? So it is hard to say at this point. The fireworks yesterday were the clearest sign that it could have an impact. If you were to ask me, earlier this week, for example, I wouldn't have much to say because, honestly, after Pelosi's plan came out, President Trump took to Twitter and said uh, that the plan was great to see, which folks took as a sign that maybe he could support it. But then during the press conference yesterday, Trump took to Twitter and said that Pelosi was incapable of working to lower the cost of prescription drugs. And so it seems like there's some trouble brewing there, but it's the early days. So switching gears to another drug industry priority, a new FDA commissioner. Nick, you and others reported that Trump and his HHS is set to nominate Stephen Hahn, an MD Anderson Cancer Center oncologist, to run the agency pending a vetting process. So Hahn would replace Ned Sharpless, the interim commissioner who'd gotten lots of support to stay in the role. So Nick, map out for us what the next steps would look like if Hahn does indeed get nominated. So there'll be a confirmation hearing held in the Senate, more specifically in the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, or the HELP Committee, which has jurisdiction over the FDA, and then a vote on the Senate floor. Impeachment shouldn't actually slow any of this because nominations are weighed by the Senate, and all the impeachment activity right now is actually in the House. To me, it feels like, you know, in older times, the nomination of a new FDA commissioner would kind of be a big event. It seems like this Han thing, it just seems like it's kind of happened and then like you don't hear a lot about it. Why are more people talking about this than maybe we've seen in the past? I mean, honestly, there's been so much turnover in the Trump administration that perhaps the Senate is just used to sort of having a revolving door of different folks come in for different positions and nomination hearings. That's obviously one big part of it. I think the other, frankly, is I think we were spoiled a bit by Scott Gottlieb in that he was always in the limelight. He made us feel like the FDA was this hot button Washington topic that everybody wanted to talk about. In reality, it probably isn't. The FDA commissioner isn't exactly the sexiest role in government. And I think without Scott there to sort of get all the press, perhaps we're going to start paying a little bit less attention to it. So, Nick, you mentioned earlier that It remains too early to tell whether all of this impeachment stuff is going to kill the momentum on on either of these drug industry priorities. What are you going to be looking for as things progress that could start to answer that question as to whether this will really be an impediment? The clearest sign in the House will be if the House's schedule for the month starts to slip. So none of this has officially been announced yet, but the rumors around town are that Pelosi wants her bill on the floor by October, the end of October. That would mean there needs to be three pretty intense hearings, which are called markups, on the bill in roughly the two weeks that the House is in session this month. If those hearings don't get scheduled and instead we see the House just laser focused on impeachment, that's a clear sign that perhaps they can't do both of these things at once. Well, Nick, keep us posted on these things. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about cutting-edge science and the development of groundbreaking and life-saving drugs. 
But the everyday practice of medicine is often more mundane and it doesn't involve being crispered or having a cutting edge gene therapy delivered into your cells. The truth is that most people who are very sick and visit their doctor get treated with very ordinary and sometimes very old drugs. But in recent years, supplies of some of these critical standby medicines have become disrupted. The shortages have forced doctors to make hard treatment decisions. Drugs have to be rationed, or in the worst cases, patients who need care can be turned away. Joining us to discuss the recurring problem of drug shortages is Dr. Ben Davies, a professor of urology at the University of Pittsburgh, among his many other titles. We should also note that Ben is a bio-Twitter influencer. He can be followed at at Davies BJ. Ben, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's good to finally have you on as a guest. Great to be here. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever called me a bio Twitter influencer before. Feels great. Well, congratulations on that. <laughs> so, Ben, you've had experience with drug shortages, specifically with a medicine called BCG that is prescribed for people with bladder cancer. So, briefly, if you could, what's the history of BCG and, and why is it so important for bladder cancer patients? You know, BCG is a very special and powerful antineoplastic drug. It's been around since the 1980s. So it's basically an attenuated mycobacterium. And it works and does three very powerful things. Just briefly, if you get bladder cancer that's non-muscle invasive, it can prevent recurrences and it can stop progression of your disease. And that would be extremely helpful because bladder cancer can progress into your muscle, which requires a different form of treatment like radical surgery. And it also can actually treat residual tumors that your doctor may not have seen on your initial look in your bladder. So it's a very important drug. It has a great response rate of about 68%. It's very well tolerated most of the time. I mean, it's our first line in defense in treating non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So Ben, why is BCG so vulnerable to shortages? Because they make it in massive batches. And if the batch goes bad, you're just basically done. And depending on how big the batches are, you could go for months making a big supply of it, and then you're done if it gets contaminated. So it's unlike making a pill, where if you just notice a few bad pills, you can throw them away and restart it. So Ben, Merck is the only company that makes BCG today, but at one time, Sanofi was a supplier. Um, They abandoned the drug, I think back in 2016. Are you surprised that a drug that's so widely used only has a single manufacturer? I would be surprised if I didn't know the economics behind it. You know, the Mylans of the world, you'd think, would just jump into this market. But there's a huge barrier to get in there in the $100 million or more. That and the drug is relatively cheap. So you're not going to make much money if you jump in. I mean, I am surprised that Merck has done such a, you know, I was going to use a urologic term, piss poor job of making it. And I don't know why they haven't done a more robust response to the need. I mean, it's not like the actual amount of bladder cancer patients changes over time. They know how much they need. They just haven't been able to do it. So Ben, as a physician, you know, when you have a patient before you with bladder cancer, what do you do when BCG is in short supply or not in supply at all? Well, if it's not in supply at all, we go to alternative drugs like mitomycin, which is much more expensive. And I wrote a small paper in the New England Journal about how as soon as BCG is unavailable, the price of mitomycin spiked by four times. But we go to other drugs. And if we don't have enough, we stop something called maintenance therapy in a lot of patients. That's a a time when you get the drug continually to help stop recurrences, and we'd lower the doses. So there's a few things we can do, which seems to be okay, and but it's certainly not as efficacious as getting the whole drug. So Ben, if you had power influence over the supply of BCG, what would you do to try to make the drug more plentiful? 
Oh, God. I think the number one thing, and I've said this publicly, I've written about it, is unfortunately, even though I'm a, a card-carrying liberal, uh, you have to raise the price of the drug. If manufacturers aren't going to make any money on the drug, they're simply not going to be that interested in making it. And that's just the system we live in. So if we don't do that, then we can think about federal mandates, but that has not worked well in the history of drug problems and shortages. So in my view, you have to increase the price and find a willing manufacturer, unlike Merck, that is willing to make the drug correctly and in appropriate amounts. So Ben, as we noted above, you know, BCG is not the only drug that's often in short supply. You know, at any given time, there can be dozens, sometimes hundreds of older medicines that appear on the FDA's drug shortage list. Do you think this problem is getting enough attention? I don't think it's really in people's wheelhouse often because they don't see it. I mean, I see it every day. So, no, I mean, a lot of our media attention air has been sucked up by somebody else. It's really a horrific situation when I sit down with a patient and tell them, I can't give you the drug that has such a great response rate. Instead, I'm going to give you inferior drug that has a poor response rate. And by the way, it's four times as much money. So it's, it's a major problem. So, Ben, you mentioned before, you know, so much of this issue is tied up in the economics of how drugs are bought and paid for in this country. I don't know if you've seen, this has become a political issue a little bit in recent times. Most recently, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK proposed basically starting a government-run generics manufacturing establishment over there, and that there was a similar plan that Elizabeth Warren had described, I think, a year ago that was a smaller scale, but but had kind of a similar mission in terms of getting the government involved. What do you think of that as an idea? Would that kind of thing potentially work for an issue like BCG? I think it would work for BCG. I mean, I kind of mentioned my political stripes, so I don't mind government intervention when it's necessary. I think we need some sort of federal mandate where that means they have the private sector contracted or something like that. I was talking to my good friend, I'm sure you guys know him, Amitabh Chandra from Harvard, who's a health economist about this. He says that a lot of this he thinks could be solved by better distribution. In other words, right now, if I have enough BCG in my hospital, but the hospital across the street does not have any, there's no real easy mechanism for me to give them that BCG, even though I could. The bottom line is that we have a failure of manufacture. We have a failure, really, of imagination on how to fix this problem. And this has been going on since at least 2012. Just nothing has ever happened to fix it. Well, Ben, let us know when you start the BCG Socialist Collective. And thanks for joining us. Wait, you want me to start one? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to bring Ben back for a special lightning round. So stay tuned for that. The third quarter, the one that just ended, was not particularly kind to biotech. That's right. For three months in a row, biotech substantially underperformed the broader market. And the big drug industries indices have sunken back to where they started the year. Damien, what happened? I think there's a creeping suspicion that the biggest companies in biotech don't really know how to keep growing and that the drugs in their pipelines aren't maybe aren't as world changing as the industry would like you to believe. And then separately, there's been an ongoing concern that smaller biotech companies have gotten a little overvalued. And of course, as we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, that some of these private unicorns won't be able to go public without taking pretty serious haircuts. And you add all that together and the overall sentiment is pretty gloomy. Yeah, I I agree with that, Damien. And I would say that, you know, if you look at kind of who's investing in 
healthcare and biotech right now. I mean, a lot of money is flowing out of the sector. So according to analysts who keep track of these things, year to date, about $7.5 billion of investment money has come out of the healthcare sector this year. So, you know, that typically corresponds with performance and explains why biotech stocks, healthcare stocks are kind of flat for the year. You know, and what you hear when you talk to people is that sort of generalists, and these are the people who like obviously control most of the money that goes into investing on Wall Street. And we're not talking about people who only invest in healthcare, but people who invest across all different sectors, that those generalists generally are kind of sitting on the sidelines when it comes to healthcare. They're just not investing, particularly in biotech. So we have no real idea whether biotech will fare any better in the fourth quarter. But Adam, you did the work of picking out the major news events that will shape investor sentiment for the rest of the year. So we figured we'd ask you about it. In the fourth quarter last year, so kind of, you know, going into the end of the year, remember, we were kind of saying the same things, Damien, Rebecca, we were talking about how the sector was falling apart. And then... Bristol-Myers decided to acquire Celgene, you know, in a gigantic merger deal. And that really kind of sparked a big rally going into the beginning of this year. So, you know, it's a kind of a simplistic answer and it's the sort of thing you hear. But, you know, probably the biggest trigger to sort of reverse the sentiment would be more M&A, some kind of big deal that gets people interested again. Whether that happens or not, you know, who knows? I mean, the other thing, you know, and as we mentioned, is this whole drug pricing thing. It's just a gigantic overhang, right? It's sitting out there. Politicians are pounding on drug companies. And, you know, I don't see this happening, but unless like the, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump decide to say, oh, you know, we're wrong. We, we think drug pricing are just fine. Like that's a hard thing to sort of navigate around. So beyond just crossing their fingers for a major deal that may or may not ever materialize, is there anything we know might come about that could change the fortunes of biotech for people who are watching this? You know, obviously, we all look at clinical trials and the results of clinical trials as kind of this big market moving type event. And particularly for the companies that are kind of in that middle tier of biotech, you know, sort of the mid cap, mid cap to large cap, you know, that are already sort of a few billion dollars in size. And then something happens that sort of dramatically increases their value. So like companies that are coming up like Marathi Therapeutics, Sage Therapeutics, Biomarin, Bluebird, these are all companies that have in the next few months have some clinical trials that could read out that if successful, if positive, could kind of really sort of shift those evaluations up even higher, ratchet them up even higher. And, and you know, if you get enough of those together, that attracts a lot of attention and that could reverse sentiment and make people feel a lot better about biotech. Next up, we're putting Ben Davies on the hot seat for a special lightning round. So Ben, here's how this works. We're going to ask you a series of questions in which you must answer with one of two binary options. You cannot hedge or dodge the questions. You must pick one and only one of the two options presented. And then, of course, we will let you explain your reasoning. Ben, you ready to get started? I'm ready to roll. So first question, Ben, you are a surgeon and a well-known wine snob. So which of these two options would you rather do? Option A, perform surgery on yourself without anesthesia. Or option B, drink rosé from a can. First of all, I reject the wine snob attribute. Um, that's ridiculous. Are you sure about that? Um, ah, I don't <laughs> know about that, That's a horrible insinuation. Ben. I like wine culture. I'll even cheap occasionally drink cheap wine. I would say I'd rather do surgery on myself. First of all, I don't like rosé really 
in almost any form. Occasionally, a Provencal rosé is, is okay, but I don't really like rosé at all. It's kind of like horrifying to me. And I can do surgery on myself. It's not a problem. You know, that's exactly the answer I would expect from a wine snob. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm sure I was predictable. Like I said, wine snob. So, somewhat different topic. This week, we learned that the Trump administration plans to nominate an MD Anderson oncologist named Stephen Hahn to be the next FDA commissioner, which, of course, means that current acting commissioner Ned Sharpless would be out of a job. Ben, if it were up to you, Hahn or Sharpless? I don't know either of those fine gentlemen. I'm sure they're both wonderful. I'll go with Sharpless because I don't like some of the background that I've read about the other gentlemen. All right, moving on. Ben, uh, wearing a suit and tie to work every day is one of your trademarks. I'd say that you and Brad Longcar are probably the two best dressed dudes in the bio Twitter world. But for this lightning round, we're interested in your sartorial preferences off the clock. So with that introduction, cargo shorts or gym shorts? I am a firm believer in cargo shorts. Now, if you're a dad, you think cargo shorts are the best. You feel a lot of crap in there, feed the kids, diapers, bottles, cargo shorts for sure. All right. T-shirts, tucked or untucked? Oh, untucked. That, who tucks their T-shirt in? That's horrifying. Okay, last one. Skinny jeans or dad jeans? Okay. I believe it's Scott Godlieb who likes the skinny jeans, so I'm going to dig on him. Uh, I do dad jeans. I do not like things tight on my butt. <laughs> so, Ben, you're a urologist by training, so startups like Hims and Roman have changed the way erectile dysfunction drugs get prescribed. Is that good or bad for patients? Um, I think it's fine. I mean, I, th I actually think that's ridiculous that we have even those entities exist. So both of those, all, almost all erectile dysfunction drugs should be over the counter as they are in Europe uh, in some countries. They're b relatively benign drugs. They're certainly no more dangerous than aspirin, which we can get. And I actually find those companies ridiculous. You know, we should just have the drugs available. All right, Ben, last question. We know that you're also a big sports fan. So which is a better sports town? A, Pittsburgh, which is your home, or B, Boston? You have sports in Boston? I guess, <laughs> I mean, Pittsburgh isn't just a sports town. You guys kind of like play with a little bit. Some people put some hats on and stuff. We live and breathe it. And it's a Sunday here. You're in the grocery store. Grandmas have Steeler earrings on. Um, I got my jersey on, my hat on. That's all we talk about. Uh, you guys are like, uh, I don't even know how to describe Boston sports fans. Just pathetic comes to mind. Um, silly. Those kind of things. Ben, we love you. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> ben, thank you for playing along and thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. My pleasure. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and tell us whether wine belongs in a can. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud.statnews.com. And if you like what we do, tell a friend about the show. Leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.